In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, please be seated. <clears throat> the Bible character who figures most prominently in Advent, other than Jesus, is John the Baptist, as we should know by now. Uh, the two are inextricably linked with their births, with John born just a few months ahead of Jesus, who is probably his, his second cousin. When Mary, who is carrying Jesus in her womb, comes to visit her relative Elizabeth, who is also pregnant with John, John leaps in his mother's womb, and, Li- and Elizabeth cries. He is jumping for joy. And I think maybe John was also kicking in agitation. The relationship between Jesus and John was difficult. They weren't exactly kissing cousins. And our gospel reading for today depicts them as fundamentally different from each other. John comes to his people neither eating nor drinking. He is an ascetic. I think he probably was an introvert. Jesus comes to his people eating and drinking. He's called the glutton and a drunkard. Jesus is depicted as a merry fellow who pipes, plays the flute, and John, a dour fellow who sings a dirge. And John is labeled a demoniac for his efforts, and Jesus a party animal. (laughs) Watch out for labels. They're never accurate. But both John and Jesus had different lifestyles, but they're united in purpose. John to announce the Messiah and Jesus to be the Messiah. John the herald is the best man and not the groom. And John is the greatest of his time, the time of the prophets leading up to Jesus, of whom Jesus says there is no one greater among men. And John heralds the greatest of all time, the greatest of all time because he comes from outside of time and intersects time and redeems time. And of John, the greatest of his time, Jesus also says, as John comes into my time, he is the least in my kingdom. John is happy to be a nobody if Jesus will be the somebody he wants Jesus to be. And it's here that John falters. He stumbles. John's proclamation, we just sang it. Behold the Lamb of God, he is the one. And the cool waters of the Jordan now rings hollow in John's prison cell from where he asks, are you the one? And this is the question of Advent. This is the question of disenchantment, of stripping away our illusions of who God is, who we think he is, and how we think he should accomplish his purposes. In his book, No Country for Old Men, Joel Erickson referenced the movie made from, a, from, from, from this book, if you can remember, in his wonderful catechesis in our Grace series, Grace and the Cohen Brothers. And he found grace there. But in that book, No Country for Old Men, Cormac McCarthy writes about Sheriff Bell, who is fighting a losing war with drug dealers on the Mexican border. Some things never change. And is wondering if there is a God at all. That is the Advent question. He stops at a restaurant for lunch. When the waitress came with more coffee, Sheriff Bell asked her what time they got the evening paper. I don't know, she said. I quit reading it. I don't blame you. I would if I could. I don't know why they call it a newspaper. I don't call that stuff news. No, 
When was the time you read something about Jesus Christ in the newspaper? Bell shook his head. I don't know, he said. I guess I'd have to say it would be a while. I guess it would too, she said. A long while. Then the sheriff muses about an old man that he knows. You'd think a man that had waited 80-some-odd years on God to come into his life. Well, you'd think he'd come. If he didn't, you'd still have to figure he knew what he was doing. I don't know what other description of God you could have. I like that simple description of God, Cormac McCarthy writes. The one who knows what he is doing even and especially when we don't. The Advent question has been asked for centuries by the prophets. Isaiah cries, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Habakkuk implores, How long, O Lord? And now John, a prophet and more than a prophet, echoes these cries as he questions the one who has come, but not in the way he wanted. Jesus, after all, was not doing anything revolutionary or cataclysmic. He was not wreaking vengeance. I read this gospel to the youth last Sunday night, and when I asked what John might have been expecting from Jesus, one of our youth said immediately, a jailbreak. (laughs) At the very least. And Jesus does not arrange a jailbreak. This is not a Netflix series because that would have been premature to the accomplishment of God's purpose. One half of the message of Advent is that things are bad and will get a lot worse. But that does not extinguish the good news. Rather, it intensifies the light in the midst of the darkness. The good news always emerges from the bad news. Out of suffering unto death upon the cross, This is why we know that the exhortation to repent, you've been hearing a lot of exhortations this season, that exhortation to repent does not come at the point of a gun, but is rather the plea of someone willing to die for that message and die for the one that he or she exhorts. We are not morality police. We trust the good news in part because the bearers of the good news suffered and died for it and for us. The messianic reign is inaugurated through suffering and not through triumph. John is beheaded, Jesus is crucified, and the suffering does not stop but continues until the time when Jesus, the crucified king, returns as a triumphant judge who will not render a verdict which has been rendered long before he comes but will restore the world to its right mind. But until then... Jesus gives his Advent answer to John's Advent question. He tells his disciples, John's disciples, go and tell him what you hear and see. Quoting Isaiah, Jesus says, The blind see, the deaf hear, lame walk, lepers are cleansed, dead are raised, and the poor of good news preached to them. And Jesus says that the time foretold by the prophet has actually come true in my ministry, in his ministry. The signs of the inbreaking of God's kingdom are occurring because I have arrived, Jesus says. But still, there is a very odd quality about Jesus' answer to John. For John, the evidence is still inconclusive. Yes, Jesus heals, but only a blind man here, a lame man there. You know, there has been recently a much ballyhooed Uh, ballyhoo about this concept of effective altruism. 
If you haven't read about it, you should go and read it. And it's called by an, in an article I wrote, The Utilitarian Flavored Philanthropic Social Movement. And this effective altruism is championed by our cryptocurrency visionaries and other philosopher king hotshots. And their thinking is make billions and give it all away to help as many of the less fortunate as possible live better lives. Well, we wonder how well is that working? And compared to that, however, Jesus' efforts are highly ineffective, inefficient, paltry. A blind man here, a lame man there. I know a bit of this. You know a bit of this as we pray for some of the requests that come through our prayer chain. We know some of the relentless depression that some of us face, the paralyzing disabilities, the crippling anxieties, and we want to pray God. We do pray God, make it, make them, make all of us all better. And he doesn't, not in the way we want him to. The signs of the kingdom remain hidden. They were hidden in Jesus' time, and they remain hidden now. And that, in part, is the reason Jesus said, blessed is he who takes no offense at me. We did not want or expect this kind of Messiah, a Messiah who would be so obscure and humble and in the end so rejected. And yet, and yet, and yet, while the signs of the kingdom remain ambiguous, seem inconclusive, have a hidden quality about them, God is always working in and through the suffering. He's always working his strange, mysterious, and hidden purpose. And that's why he said, listen. He says, listen, pay attention to what I'm doing. And the mystery of God's activity in this world is that tiny signs of faithfulness and love and mercy and hope, these are the tiny signs enacted by the community of God's faithful, by us. And they are pointers to the glory that will come when the Lord takes power to himself. And until that time, the glory is secreted for the time being in the small deeds and the little prayers of the church of God. And until that day of the Lord's coming, James exhorts us to be patient, establish our hearts, be steadfast in suffering. In this, he joins Isaiah, who also exhorts us to strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Where does that strength come from? Where does that strength come from that enables us to go back home? As Father James reminded us last week, God's empowering grace, it always comes from God. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. Be strong, fear not. The redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Look at that bulletin of the picture in front of you. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. You know, there's that saying, if you see something, say something. We all know that, right? Well, why don't we take that, instead of applying it to something suspicious, why don't we take that and apply it to something auspicious, something wonderful that you might see around you? What I find in the church is quite often we are hell-bent on reading stuff that's bad. That's, we, we tend to be negative, discouraged, defeatist. Well, if we see something good, say something about it to somebody. Encourage somebody. We all need encouragement. We're desperate for encouragement. Be aware of the small deeds God is doing among us and through us. And tell each other, tell each other, as Jesus instructed the disciples to tell John, what we hear and see. And be encouraged. Amen.